Book One, Chapter Two of the History of Sir Richard Calmady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. The History of Sir Richard Calmady by Lucas Mallet. Book One, Chapter Two giving the very earliest information obtainable of the hero of this book. It happened in this way, towards the end of August 1842. In the grey of the summer evening, as the sunset faded and the twilight gathered, spreading itself tenderly over the pastures and cornfields, over the purple-green glooms of the fir forest, over the open moors, whose surface is scored for miles by the turf slain of the cottager and squatter, over the clear brown streams that trickle out of the pink and emerald mosses of the peat bogs and gain volume and vigour as they sparkle away by woodside and green lane and village street and over those secret bosky places in the heart of the great common lands where the smooth white stems and glossy foliage of the self-sown hollies spring up between the roots of the beech trees where plovers cry and stoat and weasel lurk and scamper while the old poacher's lean, ill-favoured, rusty-coloured lurcher picks up a shrieking hare, and where wandering bands of gypsies, those lithe, onyx-eyed children of the magic east, still pitch their dirty, little, fungus-like tents around the campfire. As the sunset died, and the twilight thus softly widened and deepened, Lady Carmody found herself, for the first time during all the long summer day, alone. For though no royal personage had graced the occasion with his presence, nor had bears suffered martyrdom to promote questionably admirable mirth, Brockhurst, during the past week, had witnessed a series of festivities hardly inferior to those which mark Sir Denzil's historic housewarming. Young Sir Richard Calmady had brought home his bride, and it was but fitting the whole countryside should see her so all and sundry received generous entertainment according to their degree labourers tenants school-children weary old age from penny green poorhouse taking its pleasure of cakes and ale half suspiciously in the broad sunshine the leading shopkeepers of west church and their humbler brethren from farley row all the country gentry too lord and lady fallowfield and a goodly company from whitney park Lord Denier and a large contingent from Grimshot Place, the Cathcarts of Newlands, and many more persons of undoubted consequence, especially perhaps in their own eyes. Not to mention a small army of local clergy, who ever display a touching alacrity in attending festivals, even those of a secular character, with camp followers in the form of wives and families galore. And now, at last, all was over balls sports theatricals and dinners the last in the case of the labourers with the unlovely adjunct of an ox roasted whole even the final garden party designed to include such persons as it was socially speaking a trifle difficult to place image owner of the big shot over brewery for instance who was shouldering his way so vigorously towards fortune and a seat on the bench of magistrates the younger members of the firm of goatway and fox solicitors of west church 
Goodall, the Methodist miller from Parsons Holt, and certain sporting yeoman farmers with their comely womankind. Even this final entertainment, with all its small triumphs and heart-burnings, flutterings of youthful inexperience, aspirations, condescensions, had gone, like the rest of the week's junketing, to swell the sum of things accomplished, of all that which is past and done with, and will never come again. Fully an hour ago, Dr. Knott, under plea of waiting cases, had hitched his ungainly, thick-set figure into his high gig. "'Plenty of fine folks, eh, Timothy?' he said to the ferret-faced groom beside him, as he gathered up the reins, and the brown mare, knowing the hand on her mouth, laid herself out to her work. "'Handsome young couple as anybody need wish to see.' not much business doing there for me i fancy unless it lies in the nursery line say those brockers folks mostly dies early though remarked timothy with praiseworthy effort at professional encouragement eh, so you've heard that story too have you and john knott drew the lash gently across the hollow of the mare's back this ere sir richard's the third baronet i've seen and i ain't so very old neither the doctor looked down at the spare little man with a certain snarling affection as he said oh no i'm not kept awake o' nights by the fear of losing you timothy your serviceable old carcass'll hang together for a good while yet then his rough eyebrows drew into a line and he stared thoughtfully down the long space of the clean gravel road under the meeting branches of the lime trees the Whitney Sharabanks had driven off but a few minutes later, to the admiration of all beholders, yet not, it must be admitted, without a measure of inward perturbation on the part of that noble charioteer, Lord Fallowfield. Her ladyship was constitutionally timid, and he was none too sure of the behaviour of his leaders in face of the string of very miscellaneous vehicles waiting to take up. However, the illustrious party happily got off without any occasion for Lady Fallowfield's screaming. Then the ardour of departure became universal, and in broken procession the many carriages, phaetons, gigs, traps, and pony chaises streamed away from Brockhurst House, north, south, east, and west. Lady Calmady had bidden her guests farewell at the side door opening on to the terrace before they passed through the house to the main entrance in the south front. Last to go, as he had been first to come, was that worthy person, Thomas Carroll, the rector of Sandyfield. Mild, white-haired, and deficient in chin, he had a natural leaning towards women in general, and towards those of the upper classes in particular. Catherine Calmady's radiant youth, her courtesy, her undeniable air of distinction, and a certain gracious gaiety which belonged to her, had, combined with unaccustomed indulgence in claret cup, gone far to turn the good man's head during the afternoon. Regardless of the slightly flustered remonstrances of his wife and daughters, he lingered, expending himself in innocently confused compliment supplemented by prophecies regarding the blessings destined to descend upon brockhurst and the mother parish of sandyfield in virtue of lady calmady's advent but at length he also was gone 
Catherine waited, her eyes full of laughter, until Mr. Carroll's footsteps died away on the stone quarries of the great hall within. Then she gently drew the heavy door to, and stepped out onto the centre of the terrace. The grass slopes of the park, dotted with thorn-trees and beds of bracken, the lime avenue running along the ridge of the hill, the ragged edge of the fir forest to the east, and the mass of the house, all these were softened to a vagueness, as the landscape in a dream, by the deepening twilight. An immense repose pervaded the whole scene. It affected Catherine to a certain seriousness. Her social excitements and responsibilities, the undoubted success that had attended her maiden essay as hostess during the past week, shrank to trivial proportions. Another order of emotion arose in her. She became sensible of a necessity to take counsel with herself. She moved slowly along the terrace, paused in the arcaded garden hall at the end of it, the carven stone benches and tables of which showed somewhat ghostly in the dimness, to put off her bonnet and push back the lace scarf from her shoulders. An increasing solemnity was upon her. There were things to think of, things deep and strange. She must needs place them, make an effort anyhow to do so, and in face of this necessity came an instinct to rid herself of all small impeding conventionalities, even in the matter of dress, for there was in Catherine that inherent desire of harmony with her surroundings, that natural sense of fitness, which, given certain technical aptitudes, goes to make a great dramatic artist. But since in her case such technical aptitudes were either non-existent or wholly in abeyance, it followed that, save in nice questions of private honour, she was quite the least self-conscious and self-critical of human beings. Now, as she passed out under the archway onto the square lawn of the Troco ground, bareheaded in her pale dress, a sweet seriousness filling all her mind, even as the sweet summer twilight filled all the valley and veiled the gleaming surface of the long water far below, she felt wholly in sympathy with the aspect and sentiment of the place. Indeed, it appeared to her just then that the four months of her marriage, the five months of her engagement, even the twenty-two years which made up all the sum of her earthly living, were a prelude merely to the present hour and to that which lay immediately ahead. Yet the prelude had in truth been a pretty enough piece of music. Catherine's experience had but few black patches in it as yet, furnished with a fair and healthy body, with a fine breeding, with a character in which the pride and grit of her north-country ancestry was tempered by the poetic instincts and quick wit which came to her with her mother's Irish blood, Catherine Ormiston started as well furnished as most to play the great game that all are bound to play, whether they will or no, with fate. Mrs. Ormiston, still young and beloved, had died in bringing this, her only daughter, into the world, and her husband had looked somewhat coldly upon the poor baby in consequence. There was an almost misanthropic vein in the autocratic landowner and ironmaster. He had three sons already, and therefore found but little use for this woman-child. So while pluming himself on his clear judgment and unswerving reason, he resented most unreasonably her birth, 
since it took his wife from him. Such is the irony of things, forever touching man on the raw, proving his weakness in that he holds his strongest point. In point of fact, however, Catherine suffered but slightly from the poor welcome that greeted her advent in the grey, many-towered house upon the Yorkshire coast, for her great-aunt, Mrs. St. Quentin, speedily gathered the small creature into her still beautiful arms, and lavished upon it both tenderness and wealth, along, as it grew to a companionable age, with the wisdom of a mind ripened by wide acquaintance with men and with public affairs. Mrs. St. Quentin, famous in Dublin, London, and Paris as a beauty and a wit, had passed her early womanhood among the tumult of great events. She had witnessed the horrors of the terror, the splendid amazements of the First Empire, and could still count among her friends and correspondents politicians and literary men of no mean standing. A legend obtains that Lord Byron sighed for her, and in vain. For, as Catherine came to know later, this woman had loved once, daringly, finally, yet without scandal, though the name of him whom she loved, and who loved her, was not, it must be owned, St. Quentin. And perhaps it was just this, this hidden and somewhat tragic romance, which kept her so young, so fresh, kept her unworldly, though moving so freely in the world, had given her that exquisite sense of relative values and that knowledge of the heart, which leads, as the divine Plato has testified, to the highest and most reconciling philosophy. Thus the delicately brilliant old lady and the radiant young lady lived together delightfully enough, spending their winters in Paris in a pretty apartment in the Rue des Rennes, shared with one Mademoiselle de Mirancourt, whose friendship with Mrs. St. Quentin dated from their school days at the convent of the Sacre-Cœur. Spring and autumn found Catherine and her great-aunt in London, while in summer there was always a long visit to Ormiston Castle, looking out from the cliff-edge upon the restless North Sea. Lovers came in due course, for over and above its own shapeliness, which surely was reason enough, Catherine's hand was well worth winning from the worldly point of view. She would have money, and Mrs. St. Quentin's influence would count for much in the case of a great-nephew by marriage who aspired to a parliamentary or diplomatic career. But the lovers also went, for Catherine asked a great deal, not so much of them, perhaps, as of herself. She had taken an idea, somehow, that marriage, to be in the least satisfactory, must be based on love, and that love worth the name is essentially a two-sided business. Indirectly, the girl had learnt much on this difficult subject from her great-aunt, and with characteristic directness had agreed with herself to wait till her heart was touched, if she waited a lifetime, though of exactly in what either her heart or the touching of it consisted, she was deliciously innocent as yet. And then, in the summer of 1841, Sir Richard Calmady came to Ormiston. He and her brother Roger had been at Eton together. 
Catherine remembered him years ago as a well-bred and courteously contemptuous schoolboy, upon whose superior mind small female creatures, busy about dolls and victims of the athletic restrictions imposed by petticoats, made but slight impression. Latterly, Sir Richard's name had come to be one to conjure with in racing circles, thanks to the performances of certain horses bred and trained at the Brockhurst stables, though some critics, it is true, deplored his tendency to neglect the older and more legitimate sport of flat racing in favour of steeplechasing. It was said he aspired to rival the long list of victories achieved by Mr. Elmore's Gaylad and Lottery, and the successes of Peter Simple, the famous Grey. This much Catherine had heard of him from her brother, and having her haughty turns, as what charming woman has not, set him down as probably a rough sort of person, notwithstanding his wealth and good connections, a kind of gentleman jockey, upon whom it would be easy to take a measure of pretty revenge for his boyish indifference to her existence. But the meeting, and the young man alike, turned out quite other than she had anticipated for she found a person as well furnished in all polite and social arts as herself, with no flavour of the stable about him. She had reckoned on one whose scholarship would carry him no further than a few stock quotations from Horace, and whose knowledge of art would begin and end with a portrait of himself presented by the members of a local hunt. And it was a little surprising, possibly a little mortifying to her, to hear him talking over obscure passages in Spencer's Fairy Queen with Mrs. St. Quentin before the end of the dinner, and nicely apprising the relative merits of the watercolour sketches by Turner that hung on either side the drawing-room fireplace. Nor did Catherine's surprises end here. An unaccountable something was taking place within her that opened up a whole new range of emotion she the least moody of young women had strange fluctuations of temper finding herself buoyantly happy one hour the next pensive filled with timidity and self-distrust not to mention the little fits of gusty anger and purposeless jealousy which took her hurting her pride shrewdly she grew anxiously solicitous as to her personal appearance this dress would not please her nor that the image of her charming oval face and well-set head ceased to satisfy her. Surely a woman's hair should be either positively blonde or black, not this indeterminate brown with warm lights in it. She feared her mouth was not small enough, the lips too full and curved for prettiness. She wished her eyes less given to change, under their dark lashes, from clear grey-blue to a nameless colour like the gloom of the pools of a woodland stream, as her feelings changed from gladness to distress. She feared her complexion was too bright, and then not bright enough, and all the while a certain shame possessed her that she should care at all about such trivial matters, for life had grown suddenly larger and more august books she had read, faces she had watched a hundred times, the vast horizon looking eastward over the unquiet sea. All these gained a new value and meaning which at once enthralled and agitated her thoughts. Sir Richard Calmady stayed a fortnight at Ormiston, 
and the two ladies crossed to Paris earlier that autumn than was their custom. Catherine was not in her usual good health, and Mrs. St. Quentin desired change of air and scene on her account. She took Mademoiselle de Mirancourt into her confidence, hinting at causes for her restlessness and wayward little humours unacknowledged by the girl herself. Then the two elder women wrapped Catherine about with an atmosphere of, if possible, deeper tenderness than before, mingling sentiment with their gaiety and gaiety with their sentiment, and the delicate respect which refrains from question with both. One keenly bright October afternoon, Richard Calmady called in the Rue de Rennes. It appeared he had come to Paris with the intention of remaining there for an indefinite period. He called again, and yet again, making himself charming, a touch of deference tempering his natural suavity, alike to his hostesses and to such of their guests as he happened to meet. It was the fashion of fifty years ago to conduct affairs, even those of the heart, with a dignified absence of precipitation. The weeks passed, while Sir Richard became increasingly welcome in some of the very best houses in Paris. And Catherine? It must be owned, Catherine was not without some heartaches, which she proudly tried to deny to herself and conceal from others. But eventually... It was on the morning after the ball at the British Embassy. The man spoke, and the maid answered, and the old order changed, giving place to new in the daily life of the pretty apartment of the Rue de Rennes. About five months later the marriage took place in London, and Sir Richard and Lady Calmady started forth on a wedding journey of the old-fashioned type. They travelled up the Rhine, and posted all in the delicious early summer weather through northern Italy as far as Florence. They returned by Paris, and there Mrs. St. Quentin watching, in almost painful anxiety, to see how it fared with her recovered darling, was wholly satisfied and gave thanks, for she perceived that in this case at least marriage was no legal, conventional connection, leaving the heart emptier than it found it, the bartering of precious freedom for a joyless bondage, an obligation weary in the present and hopeless of alleviation in the future, save by the reaching of that far distant heavenly country, concerning which it is comfortably assured us that there they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for the Catherine who came back to her was at once the same and yet another Catherine one who carried her head more proudly and stepped as though she was mistress of the whole fair earth, but whose merry wit had lost its little edge of sarcasm, whose sympathy was quicker and more instinctive, whose voice had taken fuller and more caressing tones, and in whose sweet eyes sat a steady content good to see. And then suddenly Mrs. St. Quentin began to feel her age as she had never consciously felt it before, and to be very willing to fold her hands and recite her nunc dimittis. For in looking on the faces of the bride and bridegroom, she had looked once again on the face of love itself, and had stood within the court of the temple of that Uranian Venus, whose unsullied glory is secure here and hereafter, since to her it is given to discover to her worshippers the innermost secret of existence, thereby fencing them for ever against the plagues of change, delusion, and decay. 
love began gently to loosen the cords of life and to draw lucia st quentin home home to that dear dwelling-place which as we fondly trust since god himself is love is reserved for all true lovers beyond the grave and gates of death thus one flower falls as another opens and to-day however sweet is only one across the corpse of yesterday and it was some perception of just this the ceaseless push of event following on event the ceaseless push of the yet unborn struggling to force the doors of life which moved catherine to seriousness as she stood alone on the smooth expanse of the troco ground in the soft all-covering twilight at the close of the day's hospitality on her right the house and its delicate twisted chimneys showed dark against the fading rose of the western sky the air rich with the fragrance of the red-walled gardens behind her with the scent of jasmine heliotrope and clove carnations ladies lilies and mignonette was stirred now and again by wandering winds cool from the spaces of the open moors while as the last roll of departing wheels died out along the avenues the voices of the woodland began to reassert themselves wildfowl called from the alder fringed long water night-hawks churred as they beat on noiseless wings above the beds of bramble and bracken a cock pheasant made a most admired stir and keckling in seeing his wife and brood to roost on the branches of one of king james's age-old scotch firs and this sense of nature coming back to claim her own to make known her eternal supremacy now that the fret of man's little pleasuring had passed was very grateful to catherine carmody her soul cried out to be free for a time to contemplate to fully apprehend and measure its own happiness it needed to stand aside so that the love given and all given with that love even these matters of house and gardens of men-servants and maid-servants of broad acres all the poetry in short of great possessions might be seen in perspective for catherine had that necessity in part intellectual in part practical and common to all who possess a gift for rule to resist the confusing importunity of detail and to grasp intelligently the whole which alone gives to detail coherence and purpose her mind was not one perhaps unhappily which is contented to merely play with bricks but demands the plan of the building into which those bricks should grow and she wanted just now to lay hold of the plan of the fair building of her own life and to this end the solitude the evening quiet the restful unrest of the forest and its wild creatures should surely have ministered she moved forward and sat on the broad stone balustrade which topping the buttressed masonry that supports it above the long downward grass slope of the park encloses the troco ground on the south the landscape lay drowned in the mystery of the summer night and catherine looking out into it tried to think clearly tried to range the many new experiences of the last months and to reckon with them but her brain refused to work obediently to her will she felt strangely hurried for all the surrounding quiet one train of thought which she had been busy enough by day and honestly sleepy enough at night to keep at arm's length during this time of homecoming and entertaining 
now invaded and possessed her mind filling it at once with a new and overwhelming movement of tenderness yet for all her high courage with a certain fear she cried out for a little space of waiting a little space in which to take breath she wanted to pause here in the fullness of her content but no pause was granted her she was so happy she asked nothing more but something more was forced upon her and so it happened that in realising the ceaseless push of event on event the ceaseless dying of dear to-day in the service of unborn to-morrow her gentle seriousness touched on regret how long she remained lost in such pensive reflections lady calmedy could not have said suddenly the terrace door slammed a moment later a man's footsteps echoed across the flags of the garden hall catherine richard calmedy called somewhat imperatively catherine are you there she turned and stood watching him as he came rapidly across the turf yes i'm here she cried do you want me do i want you he answered curtly don't i always want you a little sob rose in her throat she knew not why for hearing the tone of his voice her sadness was strangely assuaged i could not find you he went on and i got into an absurd state of panic sent roger in one direction and julius in another to look for you whereupon roger probably posted down to the stables and julius up to the chapel to search where the heart dwells there the feet follow meanwhile you came straight here and found me yourself i might have known i should do that the importunate thought returned upon catherine and with it a touch of her late melancholy oh, one knows nothing for certain when one is frightened she said she moved closer to him holding out her hand here she continued you are a little too shadowy too unsubstantial in this light dick i would rather make more sure of your presence richard calmedy laughed very gently then the two stood silent looking out over the dim valley hand in hand the scent of the gardens was about them moving lights showed through the many windows of the great house the waterfowl called sleepily the churring of the night hawks was continuous soothing as the hum of a spinning wheel somewhere away in the warren a fox barked in the eastern sky the young moon began to climb above the ragged edge of the firs when they spoke again it was very simply in broken sentences as children speak the poetry of their relation to one another and the scene about them were too full of meaning too lovely to call for polish of rhetoric or pointing by epigram tell me catherine said were you satisfied did i entertain your people prettily prettily you entertained them as they had never been entertained before like a queen and they knew it but why did you stay out here alone oh, to think and to look at brockhurst yes it's worth looking at now he said it was like a body wanting a soul till you came oh, but you loved it catherine reasoned oh yes because i believed the soul would come some day brockhurst and the horses and the books all helped to make the time pass while i was waiting waiting for what 
why for you of course you dear silly sweet haven't i always been waiting for you just precisely and wholly you nothing more or less all through my life all through all conceivable and inconceivable lives since before the world began catherine's breath came with a fluttering sigh she let her head fall back against his shoulder her eyes closed involuntarily she loved these fond exaggerations as what woman does not who has the good fortune to hear them they pierced her with a delicious pain and perhaps therefore perhaps not unwisely she believed them true are you tired he asked presently catherine looked up smiling and shook her head not too tired to be up early to-morrow morning and come out with me to see the horses galloped sultan will give you no trouble he is well seasoned and merely looks on at things in general with intelligent interest goes like a lamb and stands like a rock while her husband was speaking catherine straightened herself up and moved a little from him though still holding his hand her languor passed and her eyes grew large and black i think perhaps i had better not go to-morrow dick she said slowly oh you're tired you poor dear no wonder after the week's work you've had another day will do just as well only i want you to come out sometimes in the first blush of the morning before the day has had time to grow commonplace while the gossamers are still hung with dew and the mists are in the hollows and the horses are heady from the fresh air and the light you will like it all kitty it is rather inspiring but it will keep to-morrow i'll let you rest in peace oh no it's not that catherine said quickly the importunate thought was upon her again clamouring not only to be recognised but fairly owned to and permitted to pass the doors of speech and a certain modesty made her shrink from this to know something in the secret of your own heart or to tell it thereby making it a hard concrete fact outside yourself over which in a sense you cease to have control are two such very different matters catherine trembled on the edge of her confession though that to be confessed was after all but the natural crown of her love i think i ought not to ride now for a time dick all the blood rushed into her face and throat and then ebbed leaving her very white in the growing darkness you have given me a child she said end of chapter two of book one